Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where LSU and the Saints are winning and everyone's happy, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where a landmark lawsuit has been filed in state court on behalf of a sex trafficking victim who claims staff at a local hotel ignored her cries during beatings turned a blind eye to visible injuries, and allowed her to be held for three months by traffickers in 2014. Tonight, in episode 33, we're looking at State of Oklahoma versus Richard Eugene Glossop. In part one, we'll discuss the January 7, 1997 murder of Barry Ventrice, a hotel owner in Oklahoma City who employed Glossop as a manager of the property. We'll discuss the evidence against Glossop in a murder-for-hire plot, his co-defendant, Justin Sneed, and his two trials and convictions. We'll also talk about his direct appeals, state and federal post-conviction claims, and his first execution date. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. It's nice to hear from you again. Of course, um, of course, you know we got some interesting stuff to talk about that we actually started discussing beforehand. But uh, I just read, or I just heard you talking about that case. That's one of the uh, one of the craziest things. I haven't actually seen that story yet. But uh, dang, that's crazy. That happened here in Little Rock, right? Yes. Uh, it's a it's the motel's no longer open. Uh, it was sold and then closed uh, sometime in 2015. But she's suing the former owners who owned the property at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, wow. By the way, while I'm yeah. thinking about it too, because that actually made me think about the story I sent you. And I didn't get any reaction from you uh, on it, but uh, what you think about the real life Ed Edwards? Yeah, little. I, you know, I. Um, it's funny when they first came out talking about Sedley Alley. I thought Little was the person that they were referring to as the quote serial killer. 
and it, it was the other guy who was actually in the Navy. Um, but yeah, it, it is odd. He's got some cases in New Orleans, and I think in Baton Rouge, and then cases in Occupy. He's in prison in Texas, and he pretty sure is going to die there. Although I don't know that he's got, I, I don't know that he was ever sentenced to death. So he's an interesting one to look at, and they've been able to corroborate. I think about 50% of the ones of the murders he's claimed. Right, right. Yeah, uh, Brad being the jokester he is, when I sent it to him, he said, Mr. Bojangles, question mark. Back in the, uh, back in the Facebook, I laughed. Yeah, I mean, you know, that could be. But um, who knows? Um it, I, I'll you know I'll look at him maybe over the Thanksgiving while we're off Thanksgiving Christmas and New Year okay, instead of not good. doing anything I'll I'll research good old Mister Little. Okay, okay. Well, I'll help you out. Just solidarity. Yeah. Solidarity. But yeah. Good uh, job. We got a lot to get to, and I know we're going to have at least one rabbit hole to go down for at least a little bit. So I guess I'll let you go ahead and get to the updates. Okay. Well, first of all, we did want to talk about – you did want to talk about Geiger last week, and because of the technical issues, um, we didn't do that. So uh, tonight, briefly talk about Amber Geiger. She was the Dallas police officer who shot – an unarmed man in his own apartment when she went into the apartment, the wrong apartment, while coming home from work one night. Um, She was convicted by a jury of second-degree murder, but then those jurors only sentenced her to 10 years in prison. Um, I think she's going to end up doing about two years, and then she's got probation, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think that she's eligible after two years for probation. And honestly, I think that was what a lot of the people were up in arms about. And to be fair, I mean, I'm kind of up in arms about that. I mean, you kill the man and you're getting less than some people get for marijuana-related offenses. You know what I'm saying? Well, I, I think one of the things, first of all, is that in Texas, while they are – gung-ho when it comes to death penalty for first-degree murder, capital murder, whatever you want to call it, um, they actually are not real big on keeping people in prison indefinitely. Up until, I think, 2004 or 2005, there was no such thing as life without parole in Texas. If you were sentenced to life in prison... You had to serve a minimum of 30 to 40 years, and then you were eligible for parole. Uh, If you remember Kenneth McDuff, his death sentence was commuted when the U.S. Supreme Court uh, basically found most death penalty statutes unconstitutional. And so he got a life sentence. He had been convicted of a triple murder in the Uh 60s and sentenced to death. 
that sentence was commuted. He walked out of prison 18 years, 20 years later in the early 1990s, late 1980s, and began killing women in Texas. Mm -hmm. Now, to be fair, I will say this. I And I guess this is going to be a little bit contradictory, but I don't believe that Geiger has a high risk of reoffending per se, but it just seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime, I guess, is where I'm looking at. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I I agree. I think on a second-degree murder, um, you should do at least 15 years in prison before you see the outside world again. Um, however... Well, I'm in Louisiana where manslaughter is 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we lock people up and keep them locked up for extended periods of time. That's just not the, that's just not the way in Texas. And I think the other factor that played a part for her was her jury chose to have mercy. And that is an option that every jury has. Because it was the jury who decided the sentence. So how much, uh, Lisa, how much do you think it played? Because, you know, you did mention it. During the sentencing phase, how much do you think it honestly played in the jury that uh, Botham Jean's brother actually, you know, came out and said he forgave her, ran up and hugged her, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that played a role in her getting this light sentence? Well, I, I I think it did most certainly, and I think several members of Botham Jean's family, uh, in their in their statements, urged the jury to be merciful to her, and expressed to the jury that they had already forgiven her. Right. And you know, I have to say, I didn't see in her direct testimony and her. Uh, cross-examination when I I watched it. I didn't see a lot of remorse from her at that point. I didn't watch anything she said during sentencing. But when Mm -hmm. she was hugging the brother, she was sobbing. Right. And couldn't seem to let go of him. And I think that was the moment, the aha moment of true remorse for her. Mm-hmm. For what she had done, and that in and of itself may have played a larger part in the jury giving her mercy and not putting a 28-year-old woman in prison for 15 years or 20 years or 25 years. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, this, this, this just goes to show, Lisa, once again, Texas gets this. And we've had these aha moments so many times on this show, but it's another one. Everybody wants to say Texas is quick to kill people. Texas is quick to, you know, to overcharge, over, you know, over freaking uh, penalize people. But this is another occasion where, you know, you really don't see that. Correct. Correct. And, um, you know, too, uh, like I said off the air, she's never going to be able to be a police officer because second-degree murder is a felony. Mm-hmm. 
so you know her her career as a police officer is 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 gone is dead. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I apologize. Okay. I'll grab something real quick, but yeah. Radio silence scares me. (laughs) But, uh, you know, she can never be a police officer. The other thing that I expressed, and this is just my opinion, um, I, I don't, I think the Dallas police did a disservice to her when they didn't have her work on the street longer than she did. Uh, because they put her into a street crime type unit. And, you know, some of those guys are really good and they're really good with people. And that's why they're there. But in some cities where there's a lot of drugs and a lot of crime, they're more um, militant. But I think if she right. had worked patrol on the streets a little bit longer, she would have developed an ability to relate to a lot of different people. And not see it as us versus them. But going into that street crimes unit, it became us versus them. And it's even us in some departments, it's even us versus them against other cops. Mm-hmm. Very true. Very so, true. you know, I, I, I think this might not, if she'd worked on the street, she might have been able to... Um, basically handle it by calling 911 and speaking to Botham Jean and finding out that she was in the wrong place and made a huge boo-boo. Right, right. Rather than opening the door, drawing her weapon, and yelling at somebody in his own house to uh, show show his hands. You know, and right. hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to uh, Commander Gurnan again, because that's a criticism I see. I can understand, you know, the yelling and and the commands. Um, you kind of, you know, you kind of want to shock them into just doing what you're telling them to do. Right. But sometimes they want to yell as loud as you're yelling, and where we see. Um, police officers shooting people and sometimes they were armed and sometimes they weren't it's because the yelling, they they continued yelling or didn't follow commands and do what they were told to do Absolutely. and when somebody does that you think they're going to kill you absolutely so Obviously, we've talked about this before, so, you know, everybody, I want you guys to keep an eye on our Facebook page and our Twitter for uh, updates, but uh, we ta- we have talked about, you know, doing a show based upon this case, so I don't want to go too far into it so we can discuss it at length whenever we do the show, but uh, definitely Correct. something that you want to keep your eye on for sure, but right. I'll let you go ahead and, and get on to our other updates. And that I can say the Geiger case, we won't look at that case until her direct appeal is decided. If she appeals, now the thing to do is she's if she's really remorseful, the thing to do would be not to appeal. 
I take her two years. I think they said already that the defense attorney was, you know, going to file an appeal rather quickly. Okay, well, I I think that's a mistake, and she's got to be careful because uh, if if by some chance her conviction is reversed and she goes back for a retrial, she can end up mm. getting more time Very at true. a new sentencing. Very true. So uh, she's only got to serve two years. It's going to take that long for the appeal to even happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they, if they think they've got error at the trial, um, then I guess, you know, they're going to, they're going to do what they're going to do. Okay. So, okay. but we shall see. And yes, I do have two updates on uh, Jeffrey McDonald. The United States Supreme Court declined his petition. It will not be reviewing his uh, last habeas corpus challenge of his conviction and sentences. So, uh, barring a new habeas challenge, um, he will remain incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I believe he's in Maryland now um, to continue serving his sentence for the first-degree murder of his youngest child and the second-degree murders of his wife and oldest daughter in 1970 on Fort Bragg. Uh, He is eligible to apply for parole, but he won't admit guilt and he treats the parole process as yet another collateral attack on his conviction and so he's very unlikely to get parole unless he gets medical parole because he's in his 70s and uh, not in good health right I was about to say I mean you've got to show some sort of remorse for you to think about parole don't you Correct. You do. You do. Yeah. So, and then uh, good old Rodney Reed. Uh, Dr. Phil was contacted by Bryce Benjet of the Innocence Project. And so Dr. Phil is going to look at Rodney Reed's case on Thursday and Friday of this week, October 10th, October 11th. Uh, check your local listings. If you believe Rodney Reed is innocent, you'll be extremely happy because that's the uh, that's the uh, angle that Dr. Phil is going to approach this case from. Uh, I watched a Facebook Live uh, commercial for the show yesterday evening, and you know right. Dr. Phil took what Bryce Benjet to- told him and didn't even look at the case. Or look at his own look for his own facts, um, because he said Rodney Reed had one defense attorney, a public defender, who only had two months to prepare for the trial, which is false. Lisa, Lisa, hold on. Yeah. 
the thing I'm finding here that's kind of odd is a psych, and I get them mixed up, I think a psychologist, he may be a psychiatrist, hell, I don't know which one he is, but he's definitely got no law degree, he's going to share his thoughts on this, like, yes. on television, so, that makes no sense to me. If I was Dr. Phil's people, I would have been like, yeah, I'm not touching that. This ain't got nothing. No, to do he with did people. it. He did it with Richard Glossop. Right. Okay. Well, you know he. You know he says I believe in the death penalty, but it should be beyond a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> and that well, you know, after talking to Rodney Reed, he has yeah. doubts about his guilt. It's like, of course, you have doubts about his guilt after you talk to him, and you talk to his family, and you talk to the Innocence Project lawyers. Right. Well, I mean, of course you're going to have doubts about his guilt. That's their fucking job. Yeah. If you look at anything, (laughs) if you look at anything, good Lord, 12 people in Los Angeles have doubt about O.J. Simpson's guilt. I mean, come on now. Correct. You can find guilt in whatever you want to find, or innocence, excuse me, in whatever you want to find innocence in. Correct. It it reminds me of Bruce Sanofsky or Joe Berlinger. I can't remember which one said it, but they said five minutes after they met Damien Eccles, they knew he was innocent. Yeah, well, it took me a, little, know, bit, so. a little while longer to, to, than five minutes. <laughs> Maybe there's a little bit more to this case. And just because we're on the yeah. opposite side, like I said, it takes you five minutes, more than five minutes. Can come to a conclusion on yeah. that. I, I mean, so, I, and we're not done, okay? Exactly. We're, we're, there's more. <laughs> yeah, um, another, another revelation is two new witnesses have come forward, each claiming to have heard Jimmy Finnell make incriminating statements, one prior to Stacy's murder, in which he told her, if I ever catch you messing around on me, I'm going to kill you and nobody's going to know I did it. And another who claims at the funeral during the viewing of Stacy's body in her casket, he heard Jimmy Finnell tell her she got what she deserved. How, the first I mean- witness is an insurance agent who claims the statement that Jimmy Finnell made shocked and dismayed her but not enough for her to try and report it to Bastrop Police Sheriff or the Texas Rangers in 1996 when Stacy was murdered right the second and was the one I have her boyfriend was a prime suspect and the second witness was a Lee County deputy Oh, shit. Now that makes it a little And longer. he did not report this statement at the funeral. There were cops at her funeral, as I understand it. He could have walked over to Rocky Wardlow and said, Rocky, guess what I just heard Jimmy Finnell say. And, you know, the thing that angers me is that this would have, these statements, if they were made, would have given Bastrop police and sheriff and the Texas Rangers motive for Jimmy Finnell. 
So how – first thing i got to ask because, you know, I have to know this every time. How believable is it? And then, like I said, the second one, honestly, to be honest, just makes Jimmy sound like a douchebag. It doesn't prove anything to me about Jimmy. Well, I do not find either witness to be credible because they both state that these, you know, statements were so outrageous and bothered them for years and, you know, couldn't believe they, you know, that he said what he said. But in 1996, they did not report it. Right. The insurance agent witness waited until 2000 and tried to call Bryce Benjet, but never got a hold of him. And then started writing to the judge and uh, the governor and the attorney general of Texas to give them this information but did not pick up the phone and call police in 1996 when Stacy died and when her death was being investigated. So, Lisa, here's my thing. I see the first one as possibly being something that, you know, if found credible, could change some circumstances. But like I said, I can't get past the second one. The second one just makes Jimmy sound like a douchebag, yeah. not that he's capable of murder. Well, I, you know, like I said, and the second one's a Lee County deputy. If he wouldn't go to police and report the statement the minute it was made, I, I find him to be have absolutely no credibility. Right. Because as a law enforcement officer, you don't hold on to something like that for 22 years. Oh, hell no. But I mean, And never say funny. a word about it. Maybe he was thinking like me, and I, I mean, I don't want to get in anybody's brain or anything, but maybe he was thinking about me, me like me, and maybe he was thinking, well, maybe it's not that big a deal. It just makes him sound like a douchebag. It doesn't prove No, anything. because – no, because in his in his affidavit, he says it was a big deal at the time, and it bothered him at the time. Well, damn. But, you know, I mean, but also context. If he'd reported it and they talked to Jimmy, hell, Jimmy may have been pissed because she didn't let him drive, drive her to work that morning. Right. I mean, let's be honest. Because Jimmy he wanted to drive her to work. She didn't want him to drive her to work because she didn't want him to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, she and her mom were like, no, you could use my mom's car. Right. So, you know, I I don't know. But like I said, if it bothered him when Jimmy said it, then why not go to one of the police officers? Because, you know, she was the fiance of a police officer. That place was chock-a-block full of fucking police. Right, right. <laughs> You know, including the investigators. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't find either of them credible. And, again, neither of these statements accounts for Rodney Reed's sperm, saliva, on, in and on Stacy's body. It doesn't account for his DNA on her back brace or the pants that were on her body when it was dumped off the side of the road in Bastrop. It doesn't account for the truck being located six-tenths of a mile from Rodney Reed's mother's, where he was living at the time. 
and 35 miles from Giddings, where Stacy and Fennell lived. Uh, and it doesn't prove a relationship between Reed and Stacy. True. Or place True. them together on the Sunday, late Sunday night, early Monday morning prior to the murder. They keep, you know, they keep going after the time of death and saying it's medically impossible for her to have died at three o'clock in the morning. What they should be concentrating on is proving that alleged relationship. Yeah, because all this, all this mess you're coming up with about Jimmy Finnell is not proving any of those things. Yeah, I don't think. Putting up an alternative suspect is necessarily going to be what keeps him out of the death chamber at this point. Right. And, you know, his his supporters don't want to see it, but Dr. Michael Bodden's opinions regarding time of death are something that a jury could have rejected. And right. given his testimony and cross-examination at the hearing in Bastrop in October of 2017, a jury likely would have rejected it because one of the questions that he was asked was about the pants and the broken zipper on the pants and whether that could be an indicator of sexual assault. And Uh he said, well, I don't know how the zipper got broken, so I couldn't use that. True. Um, Of course, he was forced out of the New York City medical examiner's office because apparently he didn't believe that rape ever happened because there were a lot of issues with sexual assault murder cases while he was the uh, medical examiner and he lost evidence in sexual assault murders right so um, and then uh Last two things, they have filed a request to withdraw Reed's execution date, although I don't know that that is necessarily proper procedure. Um, And they are going to be filing a new writ in state court, post-conviction writ in state court. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, definitely things are heating up for Reed, uh, you know, Calling Dr. Phil definitely seems like a Hail Mary pass, but, you know, right. that is what it is. Right. So, and um, the judge on the federal habeas, uh, federal constitutional claim regarding DNA testing, the judge hasn't ruled on the motions to dismiss, but the defendants have filed motions to dismiss that claim. And likely it will be uh, dismissed because he's asking a federal court to tell state entities to turn over evidence to a person so that DNA testing can be conducted. And federal courts don't have that power. Right. So, um, but he he may get a stay, not necessarily with this, but the judge's ruling, it's October now, October 9th. The judge, even if he, if he were to rule tomorrow, they still have a, they would have a right to appeal to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. And I just don't see 
them acquiescing to an accelerated appeal at the Fifth Circuit. Okay. So um, they would likely have to ask for a stay either from the federal court or the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And they probably would get it. Although, I don't know, because if, you know, if he's asking the federal court to do something it can't do, he doesn't have a lot of likelihood of success on the merits at the Fifth Circuit. Yeah. But that's that's where it stands right now. Um, I have to work <laughs> tomorrow and Friday, uh, but I'll probably try to find it online and watch it over the weekend. The Dr. Phil show. Right, right. I'm going to have to uh, try to catch that. I mean, obviously, I'm going to be at work, but I'm, maybe I'll be able to catch it on demand or something. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I'm really disappointed that People's Court Judge Judy are not on demand. You can watch them on Facebook, and I think you can watch them on YouTube, but mm-hmm. um, it's always it's kind of hit or miss. Right, right. So, but anyway, so that is that. That's the updates. Um, nothing else is really going on with any of the other cases. Syed, Avery, um, Skinner. You know, they're all pretty quiet. True. And we'll have to see. Skinner's case was submitted at the Court of Criminal Appeals in March. Um, It's the appeal based on uh, denial of a new trial with the DNA results. Right. Um, It was submitted in March, but it hasn't been decided yet. Okay. Okay. So... All right. Let's get on into the meat and taters. (laughs) All right. We're on to gossip. Um, Let's start with uh, Barry Van Trees. He was the victim in this case. He was born December 3rd, 1942 in Kansas City, Missouri. His father was James Braswell Van Trees, and his mother was Vivian Pauline Van Trees. Her maiden name was Bowden. Uh, He was born in Kansas City, but he grew up in Lawton, Oklahoma, and attended school there. He graduated in 1961 from Lawton High School, went on to Cameron University, uh, which I guess is in Oklahoma, and graduated from that program in 1963. He then attended Arkansas State University. And went on to earn a master's degree in banking and finance from Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Um, He married Donna Sue Calloway on March 3rd, 1979. They had five children. He was involved in banking and electronics and became a motel owner in 1979. And at the time of the that he was murdered, he was actually kind of concentrating on 
the two motels, one in Oklahoma City and one in Tulsa. Um, Mr. Van Treese was also a member of the Lawton Fort Sill Amateur Radio Club, was a co-sponsor of the Jamboree on the Air, and a Boy Scout supporter and member of First Baptist Church. Um, the Van Treese family had a series of tragedies in the last six months of 1996. Uh his wife Donna's mother, his mother-in-law died, I think very suddenly, and that was a a strain on the family. And then in 1996, while they were on a trip, uh, seeing the you know seeing the country in a mobile home, he got a like a an urge to come home, and found out that his mother was about to have surgery. And unfortunately, she didn't survive the surgery, so she passed away in 1996. Oof. Um, that had an impact on him, and during the last six months of 1996, he did not keep as close an eye on the motels as he had in prior years. Uh, He did own Best Budget Inns, one in Oklahoma City, one in Tulsa. Um, They weren't particularly nice motels. Um, They, by 1996-1997, they were falling into disrepair. Um, Mr. Van Treese had made it a habit every two weeks to visit each motel to make payroll, collect receipts and money, and make sure that the properties were being kept up to a degree, not necessarily to Ritz-Carlton standards. Right. (laughs) You know, and, and I think perhaps maybe not so worried about the clientele except that they didn't want to be known as an hotel motel. Um, But in the last half of 1996, he just wasn't, he wasn't doing it. And during that six month period, he had only made four trips. This meant that the managers of the motels were holding on to cash because these motels did not take credit cards. They took cash and traveler's checks. And that was it. Right, right. And so while Mr. Van Treese was not visiting the motels on a regular on a regular schedule, uh, the managers were keeping each day's receipts. Uh, they were allowed to live on the properties. So they were keeping the, the receipts until Mr. Van Trees came to pick them up. Um, they were apparently uh, keeping spreadsheets with room occupancies and rates and, and charges and uh, money collected, and they were sending those records to the Van Treeses in Lawton. Right. Um, but, and that, to me, gives them each a little bit of room to maybe say more rooms are being rented than actually are being rented 
to say they're making more money than they're actually making. And one of the, one of the, uh, uh, compensation terms was that if they made more than $18,000 a month at the hotel, they got a 5% bonus of whatever the difference was. So if they made $20,000, they got 5% of $2,000 as a bonus in addition to their, and in addition to their payroll, which I believe was like $1,500 a month. They had no rent, no utilities, so that $1,500 a month was pretty much free and clear. Um, Richard Glossop was was born in Galesburg, Illinois on February 9, 1963. His parents were Heron and Sally Glossop. He was one of 16 children. There were eight boys and eight girls. At the age of 14, he moved out of the house and quit school and uh, only decided to return to school after a fireman found him sleeping on a bench behind the fire station and talked to him and got him to go back to school. At 16, he married for the first time to a woman named Jackie. And they started a family with two daughters, Christina and Erica. Um, apparently, Jackie was African-American, and so there was some race racism because there was a mixed marriage. And um, he eventually left Jackie, had another daughter named Tori Lynn Glossop with a different woman named Missy, and they eventually moved to Oklahoma. Um, they returned, he returned to Illinois and then spent time in Iowa and Nebraska and had a son with Missy by the name of Ricky. Um, now apparently I read somewhere else that Glossop was always able to get jobs with struggling businesses like restaurants, motels, and he was able to come in and turn them around and make them profitable again. Right. But the thing that I read, I got the I, – I made the inference that he was only at each place for a few months and then went somewhere else. And to me, the impression that I got or the inference that I drew is that maybe once they started making money, he started helping himself. Ah. To money above his salary. He was giving a little off the top. Because in his mind, and this is based, the inference I drew is based on one of his interviews about everything he did at the Best Budget Inn and what a great job he did and how Mr. Vantries owed him for that great job. Um, and I think that probably he was leaving these jobs to go to the next place and that he was you know, good at applying himself and turning things around. But then once he did, he started thinking, well, I'm entitled. Because if I wasn't here, this business would fail. Right. 
And so, and you know, he's moving from, he, he went to Illinois, then he went to Iowa, then he went to Nebraska, and then back to Oklahoma. Um, when he came back to Oklahoma around 94, 95, he started working at the Grand Continental Inn as a handyman. And that's where he met a guy by the name of Cliff Everhart. And it was Cliff Everhart that introduced him to Barry Ventrice. And then he went to work at the Best Budget Inn with Mr. Vantrese, or for Mr. Vantrese. And he was supposed to turn it around. And probably, true to form, he did work very hard at first to turn it around. But when Mr. Vantrese stopped coming to pick up the money, then, you know, Glossop figured he could rent rooms off the books and he could have all kinds of people staying there, like his brother Bobby, the drug dealer, and Bobby's, you know, partner, uh, and their girlfriends. And, you know, they wouldn't pay for their room. Maybe they'd pay Glossop under the table for the room, and they Glossop would just keep it off the, you know, off the books. Um, yeah. At the in 1997. After Mr. Van Treese was murdered, his brother came in and found that out of 54 rooms on the Oklahoma City property, 30 were uninhabitable. They had broken heaters, broken furniture, mold, mildew. They were filthy in deplorable conditions. So a 54-room motel had 24 Inhabitable rooms. And the other thing is, Glossop had all these people staying there unregistered. Justin Sneed, he came in with a roofing crew. His brother was with him. His brother didn't want to work on roofing anymore, convinced Justin to stick around. And Justin stuck around. Then the brother had to go back to Texas because he violated parole. And he was going to turn himself in because his dad came and got him and dragged him back to Texas and left poor Justin alone in Oklahoma City. Um, But, uh, you know, he wasn't registered. He was supposed to be a maintenance man. Uh, Another girl that wasn't registered that was staying in a room free of charge was supposed to do housekeeping. There was another girl who worked at the Sinclair station who was also staying at the motel and I believe was not registered and not paying what, you know, he, he had all these people staying in off the books. So how many rooms were there either paying Richard Glossop under the table off the books or just occupying rooms and not paying for them? Um, and, uh, at the time, Glossop was living with a girlfriend by the name of Deanna Wood. This is in 1996, early 1997. Um, the Tulsa property was not much better. It was managed by a guy named William Bender. Um, again, likely during the six months that Van, Mr. Van Treese was not, 
regularly visiting the property. He was letting it slip uh, into disrepair. And he was probably skimming a little bit off the top and perhaps saying he was renting more rooms than he actually was and possibly collecting bonuses that he wasn't really entitled to. Um, again, we talked about Justin Sneed. He came in with the roofing crew. He was 19. He was very suggestible. I mean, he's got a good job on a roofing crew making like five bucks an hour for 15, 16 hour days during the summer. And the company paying for him to stay, you know, in a motel or whatever, when they're working in Oklahoma city, I think the, the roofing crew was out of Texas, but, you know, making this a lot of money, good money, but his brother convinces him that it's a better idea to quit the roofing crew and stay at the motel and have a room in the motel and work as handyman and not be paid anything. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. But this is what Justin Sneed's brother convinced him to do. Justin Sneed is a freaking moron. Thank you. I, I, I second that emotion. Um, and so... On January 6th, even prior to January 6th, I think um, Glossop knew during December that Van Treese was getting ready to start cracking the whip. He was getting ready to start looking at the books and auditing the motels and figuring out what was going on behind his back for the six months in, in 1996. And Glossop didn't want that. Glossop is a very, um, if you watch on, if you have Prime, Killing Richard Glossop, you can also watch it on YouTube. Um, Glossop is very manipulative. And he's got a, an explanation and a story for everything. Right. And he probably would have made a hell of a salesman because he can be very personable and he can seem very sincere. But so he got it in his head that if Justin Sneed got rid of Barry Van Treese, Glossop could talk Van Treese's wife into giving him control of both the Oklahoma City and the Tulsa motels. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more probably next week because we're going to go deeper into the claims that, that Glossop has made to challenge his conviction and sentencing. And we'll talk a little bit more about some of the, you know, some of the claims that they've made about how you know, how could he believe that he could have control of the motels if he killed Barry Van Treese? Well, I don't know how he could believe it, but he did. And I really don't, you know, <laughs> I don't care if it was true. Right. It doesn't have to right. be true. Donna Van Treese could have testified at trial. There's not a snowball's chance in hell that that would have ever happened. But Glossop thinking it might... That's all that matters. It's his state of mind. 
that really matters. So right. on January 6th, Vantrese arrives in Oklahoma City around 5.36 o'clock. He was a little bit later than they were expecting him to be. Um, Glossop doesn't say anything, and it apparently was only between Mr. Vantrese and Glossop, uh, although Mr. Vantrese did make some statements to William Bender, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but I think Vantrese at that meeting was what we know in the South as a come-to-Jesus meeting, which I think what <laughs> Mr. Vantrese told him was, we know there's money missing. The the you know the spreadsheets you sent us for the last six months and the cash that we've gotten from you for the last six months it doesn't match up. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you until I get back from Tulsa to get the missing receipts, which is the cash or traveler's checks for the rooms that you say you rented. And if you get those to me when I get back from Tulsa, we're going to be okay. I'll give you another week because there are all kinds of people here and you don't have registration cards on a one of them. Wow. I need to know who those people are. So I'll give you a week to get that straightened out. Now, if I get back from Tulsa, oh, and by the way, Tomorrow, we're going through every room in this in this motel, and I want to see what everything looks like. Now, I'll see you when I get back from Tulsa. Um, because Glossop, you know, he, he, he's caught. He knows he's caught. And he probably has known he's going to be caught for a while. Because this is something he's been trying to get Justin Sneed to do for a while. So okay. Mr. Ventrice goes to Tulsa. He has a come to Jesus William Bender. And he inspects the property in Tulsa. And then he makes some statements to William Bender where he tells him, I'm getting him, I've given, given him till I get back to get the receipts. I'm giving him a week to get the missing registration cards and records and probably going to fire him anyway. So you'll go to Oklahoma City and manage the Oklahoma City motel. Um, and like I said, he gave, he gave Ben to the same deal, get the receipts <laughs> that I'm missing and get you know, any registration cards, and these rooms are going to have to be fixed. So after he finishes, he heads back to Oklahoma City, arrives sometime around between 2.30 and 3 o'clock. I don't know what the distances is, are between Lawton, Oklahoma City, and Tulsa. If you could, in the background, if you could get, you know, Lawton to Tulsa, uh, Lawton to Oklahoma City, and then Oklahoma City to Tulsa, and tell me what those are. Okay. Um, I'll keep I'll keep City. talking. Yeah, Lawton to Oklahoma City, and then Oklahoma City to Tulsa. 
Um, we're okay, going to make well, tonight's show is going to be interactive. Lawton, Oklahoma City is an hour and 23. And OKC to Tulsa, okay. said? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Give me one second. One hour and 39 minutes. So roughly the whole trip, if it went straight through, would be about a three hours. Okay, so that's – but that's – okay, let's say it's an hour and a half from Lawton to Oklahoma City. Basically, then he drives yeah. another hour and a, a half from Oklahoma City to Tulsa. And then he drives another hour and a half back to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. So that's actually like four and a half hours. Yeah. So um, this this comes up – it'll come up a little bit more next week. Apparently, at Oklahoma City or at Tulsa, I can't remember which one, uh, somebody told police that uh, Mr. Van Trees and, – and I'm, I'm – this could be gossip that saying this statement was made, um, that if my wife calls, tell her I'll be home in five hours. Um, and if it's coming from gossip, because he's a convicted murderer – He's not a credible witness to me. Right. <laughs> so uh, you can ignore that. Uh, but if he said it to another witness, um, that's four and a half hours. If he said it to somebody in Tulsa, I'll be home in five hours. Well, he was going back to Oklahoma City. And I don't think he said he was going home to anybody because he intended to stay overnight and, you know, look at the rooms the next morning. Right. So how can he leave Tulsa and be home at 5 a.m. if he's going to be at the at the motel in Oklahoma City? So we'll talk about, again, some of these claims and statements and things that, that uh, don't make sense, and if they come from gossip, they probably aren't true. So when... Van, Mr. Van Trees gets back to the motel in Oklahoma City. Glossop goes to Sneed's room and wakes him up. Uh, I think one statement Sneed gave, he said Glossop banged on the door to wake him. And in another statement that he gave to a reporter in 2014 or 2015, he said that Glossop actually entered the room with a master key. Um, it's really six of one, half dozen of the other to me. The point is, Glossop went to Sneed's room to talk to Sneed and made Sneed respond, either by banging on the door until Sneed opened it or entering the room and waking Sneed up. And it was at that time that Glossop said, "He's Ventris is back. You got to kill him now." He offered him seven thousand to ten thousand. Uh, he's offered him money at different times, differing amounts. You know, trying to sweeten the pot to get Sneed to to commit this murder. And then Glossop says, "Look, if he looks at these rooms." We're both out on our street. 
out on the street because he's going to fire both of us. Right. Um, another statement made to William Bender, which I forgot to mention, was um, he, Mr. Van Treese did tell William Bender that the loss of the Oklahoma City Motel or the shortage at the Oklahoma City Motel was around $6,000, and Glossop was either going to come up with the money and the paperwork or he was going to police. Okay. So um, that was and, – and interestingly enough, Bender was actually fired from the Tulsa Motel in March of 1997. Mm-hmm. And – he apparently did not bear any ill will toward the Van Treese's because when he appeared and testified at trial against Glossop in, I think, 2004, which we'll talk about later, he testified to what Barry, Barry Van Treese told him and did not help Glossop one little bit. So, okay. anyway, so, you know, Glossop, you know, keeps turning up the pressure, turning up the heat. Um, again, offering Snead money, telling him they're going to both be fired, they're going to be on the street, and so uh, Snead finally agrees that he'll go kill Barry Ventrice. Um, Snead was not particularly uh, happy with this plan because instead of going directly to room 102 where Mr. Ventrice had gone to bed, uh, Snead went to the Sinclair station and bought a soda and might have had a snack. Mm-hmm. Then he went back to his room. He got a baseball bat he had found when another security person left the property. And he brought that to room 102, used the master key that Glossop had given him, and went into room 102. Apparently, uh Mr. Van Treese woke up and got out of bed, pushed Sneed. Sneed fell into a chair, and the bat hit the window, breaking the window. And then there was a struggle, and Sneed ended up being able to strike Mr. Van Treese with the bat and then able to overpower him, get him down on the ground, face down, and then beat him with the bat. Um, after that, it took about 15, 20 minutes, a a guest at the hotel or a long-term resident at the hotel heard raised voices in room 102 and heard the window break as he was walking through the parking lot, um, but didn't go to investigate to see what was going on or who was in room 102. Um, And that kind of motel, the people probably aren't going to do that. I mean, like my butt would be on, you know, my cell phone with 911 going to look in the room to see what the fuck was going on. But I'm nosy like that. So um, after he kills Mr. Ventree, Sneed went back to his room changed clothes and showered, or showered and changed clothes, hid his bloody clothes in a popcorn tin in his room, 
and then uh-huh. went to Glossop's on-site apartment behind the office. He let Glossop know that he had killed Ventrice and that the window was broken. Glossop told him to go back to the room, clean up the glass, and get his bat, because he left a bat in the room. Right. So Sneed goes back to 102, gets the bat, cleans up the glass, goes back to Glossop. Glossop tells him a story to tell. Uh, two drunks, two drunk cowboys. Barry rented the room to two drunk cowboys, and they broke the window, and we ran them off the property. Um, and that's the story that Glossop told his girlfriend when he went back and crawled in bed with her. So um, also at one point, Glossop went back to room 102 to make sure Vantrese was dead with Sneed. They put a shower curtain over the broken window. Uh, Sneed covered Vantrese's body up. And interestingly enough, Glossop's fingerprints were not found on that shower curtain. Okay. Um, That's going to become an issue. Glossop also tells uh, Sneed to move Vantrese's car and that under the front seat or under the driver's seat, he will find an envelope full of money. Because that's where when, when Mr. Vantrese picked up money from the motel, he put the money under the front seat, the, the driver's seat of the car. Um, so, and there's there's no evidence. We'll talk about it later, but there's no evidence that Sneed had independent knowledge of this bit of information. So, if he killed Mr. Vantrese and then was moving the car so that people would think Mr. Vantrese went back to Lawton, he would have had no idea that there was four thousand, about four thousand dollars, under the front seat or the driver's seat of the car. Something neither Sneed nor Glossop knew was that there was about $23,000 in the trunk of the car. But that's another, that's a topic for next week. Um, anyway, okay. so he, Sneed moves the car to a credit union bank or a bank parking lot behind the motel and goes back to the office where Glossop is waiting for him. Glossop grabs that envelope which is supposed to be Sneed's payment for killing Vantrese. But Glossop grabs the envelope, opens it up, and they divvies up the cash between the two of them. Okay. So, um, and then the next morning, one of the, uh, I think it's a desk clerk, uh, Billy Hooper, when she arrived at 8 a.m., she was surprised to find Glossop up because he and his girlfriend usually stayed up till 3 or 4 in the morning and then slept until noon. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Um, I need that job. And yeah. um, he told Billy, because she saw that Vantrese's car wasn't in the parking lot, and she expected him to be there that day because he was supposed to be looking at all the rooms. And he said, oh... He went at 7 a.m. to get breakfast and to get supplies so we could start working on the rooms. 
And another gentleman by the name of Cliff Everhart, who had a deal with Van Trees that he would work security for the hotels or the hotel in or the motel in Oklahoma City, at least, and have a one percent mm-hmm. ownership. Oh. Um, Everhart's a character. We'll go into him a little bit more next week as well. Um, he told. Everhard, I think the same, basically the same thing. That okay. Ventrice went to get breakfast and, and get supplies. Um, also, probably around this time, Glossop helped Sneed put a piece of plexiglass on the outside of the broken window. And mm. once again, Glossop's fingerprints were not found on the plexiglass or the walls or anywhere where they should have been because he admits helping install the plexiglass on the outside. He denies ever entering room 102, but he admits helping install the plexiglass. Okay. So um, later in the afternoon, Van Treese's car is found in the bank parking lot. Um, his wife is concerned because he's diabetic, and so they contact police and get police involved in looking for Mr. Van Um Glossop makes inconsistent statements to the police officers. He doesn't tell them, or he does tell one that he saw Van Treese leaving at 7 a.m., and then later on he says he hasn't seen him since the night before when he left for Tulsa and he didn't know, even know he was back. Uh, Another thing that Glossop did with the employees was he told the woman who cleans the rooms, you do the second floor and Justin and I will clean the first floor. So that's keeping other people away from room 102. Hmm. Okay. And then, um, so uh, the cars found the police come in. Glossop gives inconsistent statements to police. You know, he he tells them he saw him at 7 a.m., then he didn't see him at 7 a.m. He saw him when he left for uh, Tulsa, and then he saw a man with white hair in the parking lot and just assumed it was Van Trees. And... Later on, on January 8th, because he's once the body's found 17 hours after the murder, about 10 o'clock that night by Everhart and an officer by the name of Tim Brown, um, then Glossop is held as a suspect. Um, once Van Treese's car was found, Glossop told Sneed to get the hell out of Dodge. Okay. So Sneed booked it. <laughs> he wasn't hanging around. Um, yeah, but I... Glossop had to tell him. Glossop had to tell him. You know, Glossop had to tell him to go back and get the bat. Right. Go move the car. You know, go get the money out from under the seat. So, and then Glossop, when the, when the car is found... Glossop's like, you need to get out of here. Go. 
And so right. otherwise, Steve probably would have stood around going, wow, what's going on here? So um, Glossop was questioned by inspectors Bemo and Cook, who got the case <laughs> once Mr. Van Treese's body was found. Um, inspectors Bemo and Cook confronted Glossop with the inconsistent statements. There's video and there's, uh, but it's more audio than video because it was a VHS and it was probably like an eighth generation of a tape that had been taped over and over and over again. Um, But, uh, and VHS and, you know, it just was never converted to a good digital format. Um, But you can see during the interview on January 8th, you know, Glossop is trying not to answer the question. And when they confront him with an inconsistent statement, he denies ever making the statement. He said, no, I never, no, 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 I never said, I never, never said that. No, 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 I didn't say that. At one point, he even has them bring Brown into the interview room. I said, now, you know, Tim, you know me. I've always helped you. I would not lie to you. Huh. Uh, if you can find it before next week, look at those interviews. Okay. They they really are enlightening. And watch Killing right. Richard Glossop because there are snippets from the interviews. Although seeing okay. the entire interview start to finish is a, a different um, experience. So uh, during January 8th, even though Sneed had told Glossop that he killed Barry Ventris by Glossop's later statements. He lies at that time about even knowing Ventris had been murdered. He gives the story about the drunk cowboys breaking the window in room 102. He tells him, no, Barry would never stay in room 102. He hated that room Um, and gives him other room numbers where Barry would stay. And um, they don't have enough to hold him. They don't have Justin's need. At that time, he's giving Justin Taylor as the name rather than Justin Sneed. Justin Taylor was an alias, but it wasn't the name that, that Sneed was known by. Um, and it probably wasn't the name that Sneed had a, a name that Sneed had ever been booked under. Um, okay. So they don't have enough to hold him, so they let him go. He starts selling his possessions. He claims that one of Barry Ventrice's relatives told him not to talk to the police without an attorney. So, you know, see, he's like, you know, I would I would talk to them without an attorney, but Mr. Barry's sister or daughter or aunt or uncle or, or, you know, whoever it was told me not to talk to police without an attorney. So I'm going to take her advice. It's not my fault. I don't want to do it, but she wants me not to talk to y'all without an attorney. And so he begins selling his possessions and tells people that he's going to be moving on. Well, police get wind of that. And put him under surveillance. Now, another issue that 
that was going on that's kind of not substantiated in any of the uh, legal opinions of the briefs is that also apparently Glossop was selling motel equipment as his own to make money. But um, that it's not substantiated. Uh, but I'm I'm wondering if some of the things that he sold, because he claims he sold vending machines. Frankly, either a third party owns those vending machines and comes in and does it, or the motel owns the vending machines. Right. Because they're a revenue stream. Yeah, I mean it would only and make sense. I don't see Richard Glossop being able to buy vending machines and keep them stocked. Right. And I don't see Mr. Van Trees allowing him to have vending machines on the property and make money from them. Right. With at least okay. that, something. That that's another area that I've got to try and um that I've got to try and sort out next for next week. Um, Why don't we do this? Why don't we take a quick break? Mm -hmm. And then um, what we may do is just maybe get through his uh, first trial and first direct appeal, and then we'll pick up next week with the the meteor claims. Sounds good to me, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be right back with more after this. Champion at D-Mike as they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization.
been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trip, but it must have used the wrong call. Hit us in a bad place, and I wonder what it's good for. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. My head is in a bad place. All right, we're back. Yes, ma'am, we sure are. All right, and I forgot to mention, I meant to mention it when we were talking about Rodney Reed earlier. I am going to be recording an interview with Roberta Glass, um, I think this weekend, about the Rodney Reed case. Okay. And so I will, uh, I'll post when that's going to, Air, uh, but it's it's going to be interesting. Roberta's, she's a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine, and she's got a great podcast, Roberta Glass True Crime Report. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I'd plug that. <laughs> I thought about it when I was outside. I was like, I forgot to mention that <laughs> earlier. Hey, All right. So, okay, back to poor little misunderstood Richard. Uh, On January 9th, with $1,200 in his pocket, or about $1,250, something around there, Glossop consults with an attorney. The attorney contacts the police and says, don't talk to my client without me. But when Glossop leaves the attorney's office, he has not paid the attorney a retainer. So the attorney really isn't his attorney yet. And because of the selling all of his possessions and uh, telling people he's moving on, police decide that they want to have another talk with him. So he's picked up leaving the attorney's office, and uh, he's brought back in to talk to uh, inspectors Bimo and Cook. And then he decides he's going to come clean. He uh, decides not to, he, he decides not to take the lady's advice or the attorney's and he waives an attorney. And he talks to come clean. He says, "Look, when Justin came to my room, he told me he killed Barry." But I didn't believe him. Right. And then he says, he told me, I knew he killed Barry when the body was found, but I didn't want to say anything because I wasn't for sure. Huh. Okay. And, you know, when they're trying to find out, well, why would you do that? Why would you talk to us yesterday and not give us this information? He says, I wasn't protecting Justin. And he's still calling him Justin Taylor. He's not saying, look, his real name is Justin Sneed. He's saying, Mm -hmm. I thought that I was involved because I knew, so I was not protecting him. I was protecting myself. Right. Well, that's like bing, 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 bing. You're protecting yourself because you're in it, you know? There's no reason for you not to have said, look, when he came to my room, that would have been the first words out of my mouth. 
if I had nothing to do with it. When he said, oh, by the way, I killed Barry, I would have been like, yeah. First thing I would have said, look, he came to my room, said, oh, by the way, I killed Barry. I didn't think he was serious, but apparently he was. And that's all, you know, that's, that's it. And his name is Justin Sneed, and he's six foot. I mean, you watch him. He's kind of trying to give a, you know, like a generic description. Mm-hmm. And they won't be looking for Justin Sneed. They'll be looking for Justin Taylor. Right. So after that and more inconsistent statements and more kind of talking in circles and more, you know, trying to say, but I'm not involved. I'm not involved. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Um, they arrest Glossop. But at that time, all they have is that he was an accessory after the fact. Okay. Um, inspectors Bemo and Cook all along believed that he was more involved, but they could not get him to admit to having any involvement. Um, and we'll talk about it next week. There's a lot of criticism with the way inspectors Bemo and Cook questioned Glossop and the way they questioned Sneed. However, Cops don't beat around the fucking bush. If they think you did it, they let you know that's what they think. Right. Um, And at that point, the information that they had, (laughs) it looked like Glossop and Sneed were in it up to their ears. Right. Absolutely. Uh, because they're, you know, they have information from Billy Cooper about the condition. They saw the condition of the of the motel. They have information from Glyph Everhart that there were problems. They've talked to Donna Van Treese, who tells them Glossop was stealing money. Everhart mm-hmm. had done some kind of audit at some point and figured that Glossop was pocketing about two hundred dollars a week. Okay. So, and in in six months, it was about it was about six thousand dollars. So it's about a thousand dollars a month. True. So, um, then on January fourteenth, nineteen ninety seven, Justin Sneed was located and arrested. He had gone back to the roofing crew that he had been with before. And mm-hmm. uh, was staying in an apartment. I think he was in Oklahoma City. So he, he left the motel, but he didn't go far. Right. Um, I'll do a little bit more research on that uh, for next week as well. And uh, okay. they brought him in. And, you know, they knew Glossop was involved. And I think from the first few minutes of, of Sneed's interview and, and some of the things Sneed said just in the initial stages of the interview, uh, of course, he denied having anything to do with Mr. Van Treese's death. Um, you know, that's what criminals do. They lie. They deny any involvement. Right. It's actually not unusual upon initial questioning for somebody who's guilty as sin to say, I didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, of course. But as 
inspectors Bimo and Cook let him know what they knew. And part of what they knew is that Richard Glossop had been throwing Justin Sneed under the bus on the 8th and on the 9th. Mm. Um, so they let Justin know that, and I think Glossop really was. I think Glossop thought that he could talk and manipulate his way out of this and put it all on Justin. Right. That Justin went in the room to rob Van Trees and then accidentally killed him. Mm-hmm. And so eventually Justin decided to come clean and Justin told what happened and told about Glossop's involvement. And like right. I said, Justin Steed told them, Glossop told him almost step by step after the murder what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if Justin Steed had been on his own, the bat would have still been in the room. True. Um, more likely than not, the window would still have been broken, and Vantrese's body would have been discovered a lot sooner, like at 8 o'clock in the morning when somebody went to look and see what was going on with the broken window. True. Um, so, you know, it's it's Glossop who kept people away from that room for 17 hours. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so after Justin Sneed's statement, with gloss of the statements and all of the inconsistent statements he gave, the charges were amended, and both he and Justin Sneed were charged with first-degree murder. Okay. Or first-degree malice murder. Um, they were each eligible for the death penalty. Right. So uh, Justin Sneed, shortly after, apparently decided to make a deal, which also really is not unusual. If prosecutors did not make deals with people to lesser sentences and had to try everybody, the system would grind to a halt and those people would sit in jail for years because the system would not have the capacity to try everybody so yes they make deals they make deals for lesser charges and when Mm -hmm. somebody's willing to say they're guilty of some felony maybe not necessarily the felony that they actually committed, but some felony, and to go to prison for some period of time, then the system can continue working. Right. In cases, especially murder-for-hire cases, this is very important, in a murder-for-hire case, the person who contracts the murder is never going to have any evidence Connecting them to the physical murder itself. They're never going to be on the scene. They're never going to leave behind DNA or fingerprints. 
They're not going to be seen by anybody coming or going from the location of the murder. Um, And if they're smart enough, some are, some aren't, they're only ever going to discuss the murder plot with the person that they get to do the murder for them. Right. So in a murder-for-hire case, the only person that's ever going to be able to provide any evidence tying the contract door to the murder is the person who commits the murder. Right. And generally, most people in society view the person who contracts the murder to be more culpable and more morally bankrupt than even the person who carried out the murder. And this is because, but for one person's desire to have another person dead, the murder would never occur. True. Because the person who commits the murder would never go kill that person. Absent the incentive of money or drugs or sex or whatever, a job managing a motel in Tulsa, Oklahoma, as you know, the, the contract door can offer. So uh, a lot is made of there's no physical evidence tying Richard Glossop to the murder. Well, this is true, but there's never going to be. There wasn't. That's the whole point of murder for hire. Mm-hmm. You don't get your hands dirty. Somebody else does that for you. Uh, but there are, in Richard Glossop's case, there are places where his fingerprints should be. He does admit to helping put up the plexiglass. So why aren't his fingerprints on the plexiglass? Yeah, that's a good point. They should be, unless he, A, wiped them off so that he wouldn't have any fingerprints anywhere near room 102, or B, he wore gloves. Oh, good point. And the same goes inside room 102. At one point, I think in one statement, he did say, or no, he denies ever entering room 102. Um, But at some point, Sneed said he went in and helped him hang the shower curtain, and yet his fingerprints weren't found on the shower curtain. Again, either he wiped them off, he didn't touch the shower curtain. He just directed Sneed on the hanging up of the shower curtain. Or he did assist with hanging the shower curtain, and he wore gloves. Right, right. So so his first trial, um, he was represented by an attorney who was hired by his drug dealer brother, Bobby. Huh. And okay. – uh, Apparently, the attorney was ill-prepared for a case of this magnitude. Um, He was apparently very zealous in his representation, but he was wholly ineffective. Um, The prosecution's case, of course, was the thefts that had been going on and the – Potential that he would be that Glossop was going to be fired 
there was also the potential that he might face criminal charges, and he prides himself on never, ever having ever been in trouble with the law. Right. And my opinion on that is just that he never got caught. Um, so one of the one of the main issues later in the direct appeal was a lot of the witness statements, a lot of Glossop's inconsistent statements. The prosecution got them in through the investigators rather than having the witnesses testify in person. Um, so that was a bit of a problem because there were some confrontation issues on some of the inconsistent statements that he made to Hooper or Everhart or uh, anybody else. And then, of course, you had Justin Sneed's testimony um, against Glossop, which is direct evidence of Glossop's murder for hire. Mm -hmm. Because it's based on Glossop contracting, incentivizing Justin Sneed to kill Barry Van Treese. Right. It's not. It's not even got anything to do with money exchanging hands. That he right, exactly, and that's it. another. That's another misconception too. He promised him seven thousand dollars, but Justin Sneed didn't get seven thousand dollars. Well, you know that Richard Glossop is a welcher. Is not that does not exonerate Richard Glossop. Right. Um. So then, in the defense case, I believe that Glossop testified because mm-hmm. there was an issue about Glossop's testimony being read at the second trial in one of the post-conviction claims. Um, and so, of course, Glossop gets up there, and I think what happened was you know, they were faced with Sneed's testimony or Glossop's testimony, and when you look at his interviews, it just doesn't make any sense. But Sneed's does. Uh-huh. Sneed did not know Barry Ventrice. He didn't have any independent knowledge of the of the money kept in Ventrice's car. Uh, and again, you know, Glossop pretty much step by step after the murder helped him, Sneed, cover it up. True. So, um, so the jurors obviously found Sneed more credible than Glossop. Uh, Glossop was convicted of first-degree murder, and he was... uh, uh, The jury found the aggravators of heinous, atrocious, and cruel, that the murder was particularly heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and that Glossop was a continuing threat to um, commit future violence uh, later on. Right. And so uh, Glossop was sentenced to death. The direct appeal was heard by the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, Oklahoma is one of those states where criminal cases go to the Court of Criminal Appeals, and that's the highest court. Death penalty goes directly to Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, non-death cases 
probably go to an intermediate court of appeal, and the court of criminal appeals would have supervisory review. Right. Um, and the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals reversed the verdict, reversed the convictions and sentence, and remanded the case back to the trial court for a new trial. They found ineffective assistance of counsel. Basically, they they found, based on their review of the trial transcripts, that Glossop's attorney was, excuse me, ill-prepared for trial. He was not effective at cross-examining prosecution witnesses. Uh, there was evidence that he could have used, that he chose or didn't use, and there was no reasonable tactical strategic explanation for him not using some of the evidence. Um, and then also there was some testimony that was uh, put in through investigators that the Court of Criminal Appeals felt was improperly admitted through the investigators. So they reversed and remanded. The uh, case was retried in 2004, and uh, it was a different judge. Uh, another factor in the direct appeal, they actually did remand uh, the case back to the trial court for some evidentiary hearings. Right. Um, and I, I, I don't know exactly what those are right now, but I'll look into it more next week. I've got the docket. I just haven't figured it out yet. So that'll be more information next week. Um, okay. And at the retrial, the uh, prosecution case was essentially the same, except that they did have more of the witnesses testified directly regarding the statements made to them by Glossop. And they still had the theft. They still had Sneed's testimony. They had Bender's testimony about um, the statements Barry Ventrice made to him uh, while in Tulsa just prior to going back to Oklahoma City that morning. So, um, again, and I think elements or, or passages from Glossop's first trial testimony were also offered. Mm -hmm. Again, that's something I'm going to have to look into and, and research a little bit more. I actually found that today while I was reading. And then it was time for the show. <laughs> so, um, the defense case, the defense attorneys, they cross-examined the witnesses. They confronted the witnesses if they, you know, testified to something in 2004 that wasn't in their 1997 police statements. They were all over it. Um, if it wasn't in their testimony in 1998, if they testified, they were all over it. Um, they also pushed the fact that there was no physical evidence tying Richard Glossop to the murder. Um, one of Glossop's explanations for the, uh, for the cash that he had when he was arrested was that he'd sold all his belongings and he'd saved money up. Uh -huh. Well, Deanna Wood, 
testified that they were always struggling for money. And in fact, the two weeks before the murder, during that two weeks, Glossop made draws against his salary of $211. So that doesn't, that's not consistent with somebody saving money. Uh huh. And it's certainly not somebody consistent that's living within their means and saving money. And then also the, the, Stuff that he did sell, the amounts that he gave, when you added it all up with his paycheck, even his whole paycheck, didn't amount to $1,200. Right. And in fact, the judge who dissented in the next direct appeal, Glossop 2, actually said he only had $60 from his paycheck left after he bought a pair of glasses and an engagement ring for Deanna. Huh. Okay. And at some point, he had also promised Deanna boobs. Classic. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, uh, so the, the verdict, once again, the jury obviously found Justin Sneed's testimony credible. Because it convicted Glossop of um, first-degree malice murder and found an aggravator of murder for remuneration or promise of remuneration. Uh-huh. Okay. And once again, he was sentenced to death. Okay. So uh, the case went to the back to the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, and this time it was affirmed by the Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, Glossop challenged; he made some ineffective assistance challenges. Uh, one of the claims that he made dealt with the failure of his trial counsel to use Justin Sneed's interview to impeach Sneed, the recorded interview. Um, But they, you know, they found that that was not, they they didn't, when they said the other attorney didn't use it, I mean, he didn't even question him or cross-examine him using the information in the statement. But they also found that it was sound strategy not to play the statement in its entirety because that would have only further implicated Glossop. Um, He also challenged, of course, the sufficiency of the evidence. Um, He argued that his conviction was based entirely on Sneed's testimony without any corroboration. And, of course, the, the Court of Criminal Appeals quite helpfully went through all of the things that corroborated, like the fact that he concealed the body for 17 hours and the fact that he had money, $1,200, that could not be explained by his paycheck, his belongings, and 
you know, any savings with the testimony of Diana Wood that they live paycheck to paycheck. And he was taking draws on his salary between paychecks. Right. So I think his, his net pay was like four hundred and twenty three dollars. Oh, okay. The day of the the day before the murder on January sixth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they affirmed then it went to state post conviction and he raised most of the same uh alleged errors on state post-conviction, including during witness testimony, the state wrote on, you know, butcher paper, the big butcher block, like 24 by 36 paper, um, the different inconsistent statements and when Glossop made them and to whom. And so those were taped to the to the prosecutor's table in view of the jury but there were times when you know one would cover the the one before and the next one would cover that one so the jury wasn't looking at a dozen you know summaries of Richard Glossop's statements and you know really it it was Richard Glossop's statements Nothing else. But it was the inconsistent statements to show his efforts to hide the body and his inconsistent statements about when he saw Mr. Van Treese and, you know, all those things. Um, So his his state post-conviction claims were denied. He went to the federal court and made, you know, the same post-conviction claims, although he couched some of them in constitutional and due process terms. And um, relief was denied by the federal habeas court, the U.S. District Court in the Western District of Oklahoma, and then the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeal uh, affirmed denial of relief. There were some claims that he hadn't exhausted. There were some claims that he made in state court, but only on state law grounds. And I learned something that I did not know is that in habeas, uh, the application of federal law refers only to U.S. Supreme Court opinions. Really? Yeah. When it comes to habeas relief. Now, procedural uh, standard of review and what types of claims – are except, you know how to how to examine the claims that can be if there's no supreme court precedent that can be determined by the circuit that you're in uh for example oh. in the 5th circuit there's no actual innocence claim in federal habeas corpus okay the Fifth Circuit won't even entertain, except where the Supreme Court says it can be used as a gateway to excuse a procedural default of a constitutional claim. Okay. And I surprised myself. I didn't think we'd get here. <laughs> <laughs> well, heck yeah. And it's only 950. 
So um, once the Tenth Circuit uh, affirmed in about 2013, Glossop was given an execution date on no- in November of 2014. Um, execution dates in Oklahoma, I think, are done at the governor's level. I'll have to look into that process for next week. But anyway, he had a November 2014 date. The governor or the Department of Corrections found that it was not going to have uh, the drugs to carry out the execution. And so a stay was issued in October of 2014. Okay. And that was a stay of executions in Oklahoma. <clears throat> and um, so that's basically, that's the point of his first execution date, which in reality, um, he may have been moved into death watch. I'm not sure what that first date was, but he may not have ever even been moved into Death Watch because I think they move him into Death Watch 30 days before. Right. Um, So he may have never even been moved into Death Watch. Uh, But again, 30 days before the execution date, he got an indefinite stay because the lack of drugs it's about the time that the drug makers of um, pentobarbital mm-hmm. or sodium thiopental said, oh, we don't want our drugs being used in executions. So um, Oklahoma was going to have to find a new a new method of execution or find the drugs. Okay. And uh, I'll get a little bit more, you know, I'll get a little bit more about that as well next week. Um, So next week, what we're going to do is we'll talk about each of the individual claims that Glossop has made over the years Mm -hmm. uh, to collaterally challenge his conviction and sentence. I'm not really going to talk about um, – I'm not going to really talk about any of the claims made in the second direct appeal. Okay. I'm just going to talk about the ones made on, on in the post-conviction because most of the claims in the direct appeal were made on post-conviction. Mm-hmm. So we'll start with this first state post-conviction and go through – the uh, state court and then the court of criminal appeals and then go to the federal uh, district court and then 10th circuit and then the chronology of the case after that point. Okay. Sounds good. And so um, that'll be a little bit more to, you know, to look at, I want to try, 
like we did, sort of did with swearing in, I, I want to talk about the issues that Glossop has raised over the years and really talk more about why the courts did not give him a new trial. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it has nothing to do with, oh, they don't want to admit they didn't, they made a mistake. It's that Glossop hasn't proven that there were any mistakes with his conviction. Right. Uh, because he's, you know, he and his supporters are operating from a point where they're implying there should be evidence that would never have existed in the first place because of the nature of the crime. And, you know, Glossop's always worked. I always worked for everything I had. I never stole from anybody. You know, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. But, you know, I think that when you, when you saw that there was a, a weakness, you, you capitalized on it. Mm-hmm. Vantrese wasn't coming every week or every two weeks. So you sent him paperwork that made it look like you were doing better than you were. Or you were doing that well, but you were pocketing a couple hundred dollars because, after all, it was your, quote, hard work. But everybody, every undesirable staying in that motel uh-huh. at the time Barry Ventrice was murdered. They were there because Richard Glossop, Glossop let them be. He was the manager. Ultimately, the buck stops with him. True, true. So, you know, if your brother's on the property dealing drugs, that's not Barry Ventrice doing that. That's you. Right. And, you know, I think there's a lot of... um a lot of these people, when they get on death row, I don't know if they issue rose-colored glasses, but they suddenly start seeing their past with rose-colored glasses. Because I'm sure Glossop would say, the motel was not that, that bad. Everybody at trial lied mm-hmm. about the condition of the motel. and Or he'll say, well, it wasn't my fault because I couldn't do anything. Because Barry had to sure. do that. Well... Yes, true, but not necessarily. You know right. what? If you've got mold growing in a room and you can't rent that room out because of that mold, then the next time That's Barry comes problem. to get his money, you drag his ass to that room and you say, dude, get somebody out here to take care of this. Right. I think their argument is Glossop didn't have the authority to do anything. But that doesn't mean he couldn't have gone and gotten the person with authority yeah. to do it. Uh, but I think it's like he didn't care. He had 24 rooms to rent out. Why did he need? Why would he need to rent 54 rooms? Mm. So, and I, I think the other problem is that they. They don't understand that you can't just say everything at trial is a lie. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count. There's another way of interpreting it um, and just throw it out and expect the courts to do the same. 
right. because we've talked about this before. When you file a claim in state court or federal court, they are not just going to look at your claims and look at what you present in support of your claims and say, oh, yep, give them a new trial. What they're going to do is they're going to look at your claims. They're going to look at what you you present in support. They're going to look at the prosecution, what they put in to refute your claims, and then they're going to go and look at all the whole trial record to see if what you've brought forth is sufficient to undermine the uh, belief in the integrity of your trial or your right. guilt. Um, you know, when when somebody's been convicted and they've gone through direct appeal and their conviction and sentence are affirmed and the United States Supreme Court denies cert on that, that conviction is final. Nobody uh-huh. looks at uh, innocent until proven guilty, and nobody looks at reasonable doubt or for reasonable doubt and bringing in reasonable doubt in habeas or post-conviction does you absolutely no good. Right. Because reasonable doubt is no longer the standard. Yeah. The standard is clear and convincing evidence that with the new evidence, no reasonable juror would be able to convict. And in Richard Glossop's case, his possession of that $1,200, which is nearly half of the almost 4000 that Barry Ventries had in the front, under the front driver's seat of his car, that's enough to corroborate Justin Sneed's direct testimony and prove that Richard Glossop hired Justin Sneed to murder Barry Ventrice. Good point. When you add in the 17 hours that Glossop deflected attention from Room 102 – when he knew all along Barry Ventrice was dead in that room, again, that corroborates Justin Sneed's testimony. Mm-hmm. So, but we'll we'll talk about it. We'll we'll get into a little bit more detail next week, um, and we'll talk about. Uh, We'll talk about the initial state and federal post-conviction in a little bit more detail, and then we'll go into the ramped-up subsequent post-conviction process for Richard Glossop. All right. You have any final thoughts or anything? Uh, I mean, honestly, like, my whole thing is, like, thank goodness the freaking, uh, and I'm, his name's escaping me, uh, Stetler, or uh, Sneed, excuse me. Thank God Sneed finally, you know, smartened up a little bit, enough at least to 
get Glossop, I should say. Well, you know, I, I the funny thing is, is that what enabled Richard Glossop to um, get Sneed to kill Barry Ventrice uh-huh. is the same character trait, personality, flaw, I don't know what you want to call it. Um uh-huh. A lot of witnesses describe Steed as pretty childlike, and they said, you know, he would he would follow Glossop around, and he was with Glossop all the time, and Glossop literally had to tell him what to do and when to do it. Right. And so, um, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, he uh, the same thing that enabled Glossop to get him to kill Barry Ventrice is what the police were able to kind of capitalize on and get him to uh, admit that he had killed Barry Ventries for Richard Glossop and to admit the role Richard Glossop played. True, true. So, all right. Well, I guess we're going to call it a night, put a bow on this part one, and look forward to part two next week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. We'll have a minor schedule change next week so that I can attend my local night out. So join us on Tuesday, October 15th, 2019 at 8.30 p.m. Central for Episode 34, State of Oklahoma versus Richard Eugene Glossop. In Part 2, we'll talk about the post-conviction claims made by Richard Glossop. And we'll also talk about his 2015 execution dates, his challenge to Oklahoma's lethal injection drugs, the additional post-conviction claims made in late 2015, and the indefinite stay of executions in Oklahoma. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.